Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah 44. Turn there. Steve and Judy, are you all caught up in our Isaiah series? Good, because I don't have time to review for you. (laughs) So that's good. I'm going to start this evening with a, a theological consideration that last week I didn't quite have time to talk about, but it's better because I have time to kind of expand on it now that I'm doing it at the beginning of the message. In chapter 44, as in all of Isaiah, we have seen Isaiah repeatedly refer to both Jacob and Israel. In fact, chapter 44 begins with, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So we see repeated references to this idea that God has chosen Israel. And he calls them Jacob and he calls them Israel. So there's just no question what people group he's referring to. Is that clear? Yes. Because I want it to be really clear in your head that when the word Israel is used in the Bible, it is referring to Israel the national people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because when you get to the New Testament, it's very common to hear people start saying that Israel is the church and the church is Israel. But let's take a look at the beginning of the book of Luke this morning. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 44. But go to the book of Luke right at the very beginning, because I want to read what Gabriel said to Mary as Gabriel was informing her that she was about to give birth to a child via the Holy Spirit. And so speaking by the Spirit, the very angel Gabriel has these words to say. And so we can trust that these words are honest and truthful. Now in the sixth month, says verse 26 of chapter 1 of the book of Luke, Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay, now it's very common to hear people say the throne of David is the throne that Jesus is sitting on right now at the right hand of God even though we're never told how exactly the throne of David got to heaven, the throne of David is the throne where David ruled over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. And so now the angel Gabriel is going to state that very thing, so that there's no question about who Jesus is going to be the king of. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, you will bear a son, his name will be Jesus, he will be great, and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. So he's going to sit on a throne. He's going to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that's not going to be overthrown by any other earthly kingdom. And that kingdom is going to be made up of the house of Jacob. How clear is that language? Who else are the house of Jacob except the descendants? of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The language is so very clear. Now, what's really important and why I point this out and why I picked Luke, Luke is writing 
to Theophilus, a Gentile, and saying to a Gentile, a Gentile convert, he's telling him that Jesus is going to reign on the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob forever. If by the house of Jacob, what was really meant by God, what was really meant by Gabriel, is the church, then this would have been the ideal place for Luke, writing to a Gentile, to explain to that Gentile that now Israel means something different than it has always historically meant. And importantly, he doesn't call them Israel. He calls them the house of Jacob. But that's not the only place where Luke, writing to a Gentile, makes this distinction that Jesus is Messiah of Israel and that he is the Savior of Israel and that he is the King of Israel and that he is going to rule over the house of Jacob and that kingdom will have no end. Skip forward to verse 46 of the same chapter. This is Mary thanking God when she has come to recognize after Elizabeth has come to her and has affirmed to her that she is carrying the very son of God in her womb. And then the baby leaps for joy in the womb of Elizabeth. And Mary said, starting at verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, and has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant. What is she referring to there? She's referring to the same language that we've been reading in Isaiah, where repeatedly Israel is referred to by God as Israel, my servant. And so here she says, you have given help. You have sent aid to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his own mercy. What did we read last week? God said that it was not because of the goodness of Israel. In fact, he found them guilty repeatedly of horrible sins and rebellion and idol worship and then followed it up with, but I'm going to cast your sins away for my own sake. Because you're the people that I chose. So out of my own mercy, out of my own grace, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to give you a kingdom through whom the Gentile nations are going to be blessed. Here's Mary confirming that very thing. Speaking by the Holy Spirit that is in her. She's quoting scripture like he has filled the hungry with good things. And then she says he has given help to Israel, his servants in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So what people group is she talking about? Israel. Israel. It's pretty clear, isn't it? In fact, I think that you have to work really, really hard to convolute that language because the language here is the same as the language in Isaiah. Yes, sir. Have you ever heard anyone who equates Israel and the church equate Jacob and the church? Never. And that's one of the frustrations of listening to people equate Israel and the church, is whenever they see Israel mentioned in the Bible, they say, that's us, especially if it's the blessings. That's us. We're Israel. But whenever they get to the parts where Israel is being punished, or Israel is going into captivity, or Israel is coming under the correction of God, they say, well, now that, that's national Israel. But whenever there's a blessing to be had, well, then that's the church. That's us. So they play very fast and loose with the language. And all I'm attempting to do here as a theological consideration is point out that the only Israel Mary would have known is Israel of old, national Israel. She's a member of national Israel. And that Luke, writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, continues to confirm 
It's Israel. It's national Israel. He is the king of Israel. He is the redeemer of Israel. He's come to help Israel because God remembered the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants who are the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, the very same people that Gabriel said Jesus was coming to save. But wait, Luke's not done yet. At verse 57 until verse 66, we read about John the Baptist actually being born. Let's start reading at verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God. What are the next words? Of Israel. Of Israel. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Who would be his people in that context? Israel. Israel. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Who's us? Israel. Israel. In the house of David, his servant. Because, as the angel Gabriel has already said, he's going to sit on the throne of David. In the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Then he defines which holy covenant he's talking about, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us being delivered from the hands of our enemies that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways and give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When Zechariah said all those glorious words of salvation and redemption, what people group was he talking about? Israel. Israel. And Luke, writing to a Gentile, confirms all that. Go to chapter 2 for a moment. Jesus, after he is born, is presented in the temple. And behold, starting at verse 25 of chapter 2, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of the church. Uh No, looking for the consolation of Israel. Remember, the church doesn't even exist yet. Jesus has just been born. He hasn't been to the cross yet. He has not established the new covenant yet. Pentecost has not happened yet. The Holy Spirit has not fallen and established the beginning of Jesus building his own ecclesia. None of that has occurred yet. Therefore, all of this language is about national Israel. And it's written about in the New Testament when writing to a Gentile. And I'm going to stress this. This would be an ideal time, a perfect time for Luke to say to Theophilus, now when I say Israel, what I mean is, but he doesn't say that. Because he is writing distinctly about Israel. Behold, there was a man from Jerusalem. His name is Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. And so even though in writing to Theophilus, he could say Gentiles are included here, but the inclusion of Gentiles does not negate the promises or the covenants that God has made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the Old Testament prophets, all those prophecies of restoration and regathering Israel. None of those are done away with by the fact that Jesus is also going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That is Lukean theology. 
not popular theology by the church replacement crowd, but it is what Luke is teaching, and it is perfectly in sync with everything we've been reading from the book of Isaiah, because the Bible only teaches one theology continually over and over again. Verse 38, and his father and his mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers, and at the very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So how many references in the first two chapters of Luke, writing to a Gentile, how many references does he make to the fact that the Messiah is Israel's Messiah, the redemption of Jerusalem, going to sit on David's throne? In other words, confirming by the Holy Spirit, by prophets in the temple who see him for the first time, confirming that everything the prophets of old have said is true, and this is the child who is going to accomplish all that. Which is why Jesus later in his ministry can say that not one jot or one tittle of the law and the prophets was going to be done away with until it was all fulfilled. And he was the one who was busy fulfilling it. And that means he came intending to be the very savior of Israel, the redeemer of Jerusalem. He is the one who is the help and the comfort to Jacob. He is the one who is going to sit on David's throne. That's all Old Testament language that Luke imports into his New Testament gospel. And when writing to Theophilus, he tells it exactly the way it is. I think we, as Gentiles, when we talk to Gentiles, ought to tell it exactly the way it is. I hope that now, having gone on that little excursion, that when you read words like, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, God speaks in the language of election when speaking of Israel. If he can speak of Israel and use the language of choosing and election and then later say, never mind, I didn't mean Israel. I didn't know they were going to be that bad. Instead, what I mean is the church. So now I've elected you individually. I've now elected Steve, either of you Steves. I've now elected you. Well, then that gives you some great confidence. You start. Never been as bad as Israel. Pardon me? We've never been as evil as Israel. You are such a liar. <laughs> it's called sarcasm. <laughs> we, the elect of the church, are very quick to say, well, I'm secure. I'm secure for all eternity. I'm saved by the sovereign grace of God who elected me before the foundation of the world, chose me, wrote my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Except that's the same language he's using here for Israel. So if I could be convinced that God chose Israel and then gave up on them, I would have to conclude that that same God could give up on Steve or Steve. Could give up on me because that's the way God has demonstrated himself to be. Or you have to say what the Bible says, which is he's the God that never changes. There's no variableness, there's no shadow of turning, and therefore, if he can use the language of choosing an election repeatedly in the book of Isaiah when referring to national Israel, then that means that he has a definite plan for them, and that definite plan was confirmed when Jesus was just a baby, which is why I have every confidence that God is going to gather the children of Israel from the four corners of the earth. And Jesus is going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, because that's what the Bible says. And if any of it doesn't come true, then I can't have any faith in the God of the Bible. 
All right, let's start reading at verse 9. Now, starting at verse 9 of Isaiah 44, and by the way, that was all introduction, because now we're to the text. We're going to start reading about idolatry. It is very common to hear people say, anything that gets between you and your relationship with God could become an idol. And so idolatry expands out to your mate or your children or your new car or your house or your job or anything that you love, that you desire, that you want, that you find praiseworthy, that draws you away from God. But the kind of idolatry that God is going to concentrate on here is the kind of idolatry that was very common in the Middle East and even in Israel, which was people actually bowing down and worshiping to things they made by their own hands. Objects that they made, likenesses of creeping things or likenesses of men or likenesses of angels, and then they would bow down and they would worship those things. Now, I will admit that that still happens. That still exists. There are plenty of people still praying to statues of Mary. Even to this very day, people are so religiously confused that they will bow down and worship before things that are not God. And so as part of God's defense of himself, he's now going to hone in on, zero in on these idols that people make, and he's going to show how genuinely foolish it is. Genuinely stupid, if you don't mind the term. Because he's going to say, you make things out of wood. The same tree, you cut an idol out of it, and the rest of it you use to burn to cook your food. So why is the portion that you made into an idol any better than the part that became ashes? That's how silly people are. So here's what he says. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. Just this past Sunday, in the book of Ephesians, we were reading about men whose thoughts were futile. Same idea, empty, completely without merit, having no point. And so God says that those who fashion a graven image are themselves Futile, darkened in their minds, don't know what they're doing, have no comprehension. And what they're doing is absolutely pointless while they're busy making their own idols. And their precious things are of no profit to them. Even their own witnesses fail to see it or know it so that they will all be put to shame. Even the people who watch them make these idols... Even the people who know that at one point that was just a chunk of wood and then watch their neighbors build it into an object of adoration and worship and then see their neighbors bow down to worship it, even they aren't speaking up and saying, no, no, you're not supposed to do that. You're only supposed to worship God. Therefore, God says they are all as a group futile and they are all as a group going to be put to shame. Who is fashioned to God? Or cast an idol to no profit. Who among Israel? Which of you is it? Who's ever done this? Well, let me tell you about yourself. Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. Anybody who falls for idol worship and then companions, witnesses, see that going on and don't say something about it, God says, well, then the whole group of you, I'm going to put you all to shame. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble, that is trembling with fear. And let them together all be put to shame. The man, the human being, shapes iron into a cutting tool. And he does his work over the coals like a blacksmith would as he's shaping the metal and getting it hot to, to shape it. And then he fashions it with hammers and he's working on it with his strong arm. But remember, he's just a man. He also gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and he becomes weary. And so if 
What keeps this man going is the necessity of food and water. And without it, even with his strong arm, he gets weary. He's saying, what is that compared to me? The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The God of Israel has no necessity of anything. I'm almighty. I'm all powerful. And the one who makes your idol gets tired, gets worn out. And that's who's making your idols. The things that you worship, which are futile. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and becomes weary. Another man shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He's very particular, does his work very carefully. He works it with the planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in his house. And surely he cuts cedars for himself, cuts down entire trees for himself, and he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest, or he plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. And then it becomes something for a man to burn, so that he takes one of them and he warms himself. And he also makes a fire to bake bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it a graven image, and then he falls down in front of it. God is being, very much like Steve at this moment, sarcastic. God is saying, how silly are you? You plant the tree, the tree grows up, you cut the tree down, you use it for the fire to warm yourself and a fire to cook on, but you keep one little part of that tree in order to make yourself an image of another man, and then you bow yourself down and worship it, when in fact it's just a portion of a tree that you also use to destroy. How silly are you? Now compare that to the actual God who is. The God who nobody made. The God who was not fashioned by men. The God who has always existed. The God who says, there's no one and nothing comparable to me. The God who cannot be destroyed. And he says, I'm that God, and you're making pieces of wood and bowing yourself to it as if it's going to help you. Half of it, says verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire. And over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast. And he is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a god, his graven image. And he falls down before it and he worships. And he also prays to it. And he says, Deliver me, for you are my god. How stupid is that really? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're completely right to giggle at it. Because God sees the futility of it. God sees the ridiculousness of it. And God points out, you're being ridiculous, but you're dark. Your thoughts are dark. Your thoughts are futile. You don't have the ability to understand what you're doing. And even your compatriots and your witnesses around you don't have the fortitude to stand up and tell you how silly you're being and how wrong you're being and that you should worship the God of Israel, the only God who is. That's what verse 18 says. They do not know, nor do they understand, because he, God, has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see. And he has smeared over their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Why do they act like this? Why do they not comprehend the real God? Because the real God has made sure that they don't understand. He has blinded Israel. Now, of course, Paul is going to pick up that very language in Romans 9, 10, and 11 and say that God blinded Israel temporarily so that he could then be gracious to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So even the blinding that God is doing to Israel is all by his divine sovereign plan. But while they are in this blinded state where God has masked over their eyes and their hearts so that they can't see and so that they can't understand, even as God has done that to them, 
they remain in their darkness because human beings without the enlightenment of God just don't know stuff. Human beings without the enlightenment of God are just silly, foolish, stupid, crazy. I can find more adjectives. Should I go on? <laughs> just silly, silly people. They do not know. They do not understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and over their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls. No one remembers. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you through the Red Sea. I'm the God who brought you into this land of milk and honey. I'm the one who drove out your enemies. I'm the one that has protected you from the foreign armies and even the wild animals. And yet no one remembers. By the way, I think I could apply that to the world we live in at this very moment. Say God has been very, very good to this nation. No one seems to remember In fact, they're very quick to cancel him at this point. They're very quick to eliminate him. No one recalls. Nor is there knowledge or understanding in order to say, this would be the person coming to the understanding, oh yeah, this this idol that I've made from the wood, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. And then I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. That's really sarcastic on God's part. I fall down in front of a block of wood. How silly is that? But he says, nobody remembers and no one has the knowledge or the understanding to come to the comprehension that that's what they're doing. Again, I guess I could... Apply that to today's world. People are darkened in their understanding and they don't have any comprehension of what it is they're doing religiously. And so much of modern religion is comparable to falling down in front of a piece of wood and worshiping it. Rather than worshiping the true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. So God concludes by saying, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie right here in my right hand? Right here where I'm holding up my idol that I made out of wood? This is a lie. And he says, and yet, no one knows it. No one gets it. He's death unto death. He's feeding on ashes. He has a deceived heart, and that's what has turned him aside. And importantly, he cannot deliver himself. That's a theological reality that's all the way through the Bible. That sinful people are so sinful that they have no idea how sinful they are. And then they're really good at justifying themselves. Telling themselves that their sin isn't all that sinful or that bad. And that if there is a God, he will probably just be loving and kind and accepting because that's the kind of God that I can imagine. But what they cannot do is deliver themselves from their foolishness, from their sinfulness, from their idol worship. They cannot deliver themselves. It's going to take the enlightenment of God to deliver them. So what does God do? Starting at verse 21, I'll deliver them. They can't do it. They're in this horrible state. He again has described the sinfulness, the debauchery of Israel. And so he says, verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. So who is he talking to? What specific people group is he talking to? That's the same specific people group that Mary was talking about. That Simeon was talking about, that Zacharias was talking about, that's the people group, Israel and Jacob. He says, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant, and I have formed you, and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. He's just gotten done saying, you forgot me. Remember, remember the things, remember, recall. Remember everything that I've done for you. They don't remember. He says, okay, then I'll remember you. 
I'll remember what I promised you. I'll remember my covenant. It's the same thing we read out of Luke, that he's going to remember the promises, the covenant that he's made to Abraham and to his descendants. Luke is confirming this very promise from God. I have formed you. You're my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgression. Wow, what a gracious statement. I've wiped out your transgressions. He's gone through several chapters of explaining how deeply sinful, deeply perverse, deeply corrupted Israel is. All the way down to chasing foreign gods and gods that they make with their own hands. It just doesn't get more corrupt. And so he says, I'm going to wipe out your transgressions. Now, importantly, and I know I'm driving this home, tattoo this to your memory. When he says, I'm going to wipe out your transgressions, who is he talking to? Israel. He's talking to Israel. The very people he's been saying deserve his condemnation. The very people who have sinned against him, turned against him, chasing other idols. And he promises those people, I will wipe out your transgression like a thick cloud. The same way that a thick, dark cloud will overhang. And then you know that a storm is coming. He says, that's what your sin is like. It covers you like a thick cloud. I'm going to wipe it out. Your sins are like a heavy mist. Return to me. For I have redeemed you. Notice that he puts that in the past tense. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen the restoration of Israel. But also what is about to happen, and by the time we get to, this, to the end of this chapter, it'll be real obvious. What's about to happen in Israel's history is that Jerusalem is about to be overtaken by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, and taken to begin their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so the same way that God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and then referred to that as redeeming his people, he's also saying here, before he even puts them into their captivity, I'm going to redeem you. And by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he's going to name Cyrus by name, 150 years in advance. Yes, sir. Isn't that a wonderful indicative imperative for our redeemed Jews? Indicative imperative all over the place. Return to me. Not by your own power. You can't fix you. But I redeemed you. Now come back. That's the promise to Israel. And then because that's what God plans to do, here's what's going to happen in his domain. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Okay, now he's even tied it together with his own glory and said that the redemption of Israel is how he is going to demonstrate his own glory. So I would argue that if you're going to say that God has cast off Israel, that he's done with Israel, that he's replaced Israel with the church, if you say any of those things, you're actually interrupting God's plan of glorifying himself because he has said, it is my glory to do these things for Israel. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Now, I think he's talking eschatologically there. He's talking about the ultimate regathering of Israel and redeeming them once and for all as a nation. But I think he's also talking in the short term. They have not yet gone into the Babylonian captivity. But once they do, they've got this promise from God. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to redeem you. The same way that the God of Israel brought them out of Egypt, He's going to bring them out of Babylon. So they should have confidence, even while they're in Babylon, that God is going to deliver them. Because, like I said, by the end of this chapter, he's even going to name the man through whom he's going to deliver them, through whom he's going to redeem them. Let's see if we can get enough in tonight to actually get to that, because I've sure referred to it enough. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, he even identifies himself By the proper name, your Redeemer, the Redeemer of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you in the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. I forget which conference I was at, but one of the conferences up in Lexington or down in Chattanooga, one of the men prayed. He thanked God for being God all by yourself. And that stuck with me. The only God who is, is God all by himself. And he says things like, I stretched out the heavens by myself. There was nobody to check with. There was nobody to cooperate with. There was nobody to, I did it. I stretched out the heavens by myself. And I spread out the earth all alone. Which I think is his way of saying, those little tree idols you've made. Those little little iron things that you're bowing down to, they didn't do that. They didn't make everything. I did it without them. I did it all by myself. Causing the omens, the talisman, the, the idols that you've made, causing the omens of the boasters to fail. Making fools out of the diviners the prophets, the seers, the people who thought they were seeing these things in the spiritual realm, I'm going to make fools out of them. I'm causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. Up until now, who has he referred to as his servant? Israel. Israel and Israel alone. If he is confirming the word of his servant, what is he doing? I'm going to confirm the words that I have already said about you. I've already told you what it is I'm going to do for you. I've already promised you redemption. I've already promised you I'm going to establish you and that you're never going to be moved again and that there's going to be no end to the kingdom when David's greater son sits on his throne in Jerusalem and I am confirming those words. Now when God says... I confirm my own promises. That's a pretty rock-solid promise. It's kind of hard to say, no, he didn't mean that. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. His messengers are the prophets. His prophets have continually told one story. They all speak with one voice. They all make promises of the restoration of Israel. And God says, I'm going to perform that. I'm performing the purpose of my own messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. When God put this prophecy forward, when Isaiah was writing this down, when Isaiah was saying this to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem wasn't in shambles. Jerusalem was still standing, a strong city with high walls, still felt completely defendable. Here's God saying, it's going to become so uninhabited that I am going to re-inhabit it. And he said that 50, 70 years before Nebuchadnezzar was even on the scene. So remarkably, God is predicting the restoration of a city that is still completely intact. So they had to be saying, what does that mean? We're fine. The walls are up. Everything's good. Well, what he's saying is it's going to all come down. It's all going to be destroyed. And sure enough, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. It is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. At the time he's saying that, Jerusalem is inhabited, and Jerusalem is built. But God is predicting the destruction and then the reestablishment. This is God's way of saying, I'm not going to forget you. Seventy years, that's how long you're going to be in Babylon. I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to keep my promise to you. That's exactly what Daniel prayed. When Daniel was there in Babylon, you read about it in the book of Daniel, that he went and prayed to God He had been reading in the book of Jeremiah that it was going to be 70 years. And he prayed to God, just do what you said you were going to do. Keep it to 70 years. Restore your people. 
take us back to Jerusalem. It's I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. At this moment, everybody goes, who? Who's Cyrus? Cyrus who? He says this 150 to 200 years in advance. Now that phrase right there undermines the entire concept of human choice and free will. And what I mean by that is, once God puts this forward, that it's going to be Cyrus who's going to be my shepherd, once he puts that forward, there's a whole line of things that have to happen in the Middle East, or else that doesn't come true. People have to marry certain people. People have to have kids. They have to name those kids. What if Cyrus's parents had looked at him as a baby and decided to name him Irving? Well, then this prophecy doesn't come true. People who don't even know God, starting in the next chapter, you're going to see that God is going to say to Cyrus repeatedly, you don't know me. And yet, I'm the one who opened doors to you. I'm the one who made you great. I'm the one who made you king. I'm the one that used you to deliver my people back to Jerusalem. But you don't know me. Which means a whole bunch of people among the Medes and the Persians who don't even know God are going to do exactly what God said they were going to do or else this prophecy doesn't come true. And guess what? Human history tells us it came true. We know Cyrus. We know exactly when he ruled among the Medes and the Persians. We know Darius the Mede. We know the joining of the two nations. We know all of that. It's Middle Eastern history written in advance. No other respected religious literature takes a chance like that chance right there. Of course, it's not a chance. But no other literature predicts things like this that absolutely have to occur in the next couple hundred years so that people can read it and then watch it happen. It happens because it verifies that the Bible is the actual word of God. We're going to read more about Cyrus in the next chapter, like I said. But God says, I'm the one who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. In what way was Cyrus actually God's shepherd? It's because Cyrus tended to God's sheep, the sheep who belonged to God, Israel. They were his flock. And so he put them under the care of a shepherd named Cyrus. And he will perform all my desire. Do you think Cyrus sat down and said, I wonder what the God of Israel would prefer I do. <laughs> and yet he did exactly what God said he was going to do. And God declares it here in advance. He's going to perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. That is such specific language because when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he burned down the temple. So it was raised all the way to the ground, all the way down to the foundation. And so God, knowing that in advance, says the temple foundation is going to be laid again. And he declares that Jerusalem will be built. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. That word anointed means the chosen one, the one that he has decided is going to carry this out, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings before him and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth and I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For what reason? For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen. 
For that reason, I have called you by your name, and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I am the one who forms the light and creates the darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. What a God. And he is continuing to defend himself. He's continuing to mock the idols. And he's demonstrating his absolute sovereignty by the fact that he can tell you what the future is. And then it comes out to be exactly that. And then he says, I'm the Lord. Nobody else can do this. So if you walk away with nothing else tonight, walk away first with the knowledge that the word Israel means Israel. Is that clear enough? That's all it means because he keeps bouncing back and forth between Israel and Jacob. It's very clear. He keeps identifying them as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's very clear. And then that nomenclature is carried over into the New Testament. And Luke, writing to a Gentile, uses that exact same designation for the people of God. So that's point number one. Point number two is a God who can do that, a God who can control history like that, a God who is the maker of absolutely everything all by himself, that God can take care of you. That God can take care of your electric bill or your cancer. As I think we've seen, that same God can take care of the troubles of your life because he just said, I'm the one who creates the calamities. The calamities that come into your life, he's doing it on purpose, in order to build up your faith, in order to corner you so you have nowhere else to run but to him. And you can trust that God because, as he keeps saying, there is no other. I'm it. Got it? Got it. Usually at this point we say goodbye to the internet congregation, but now I think Steve and Judy ought to say goodbye to themselves. Say goodnight to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God. 